not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety a decade ago. In my blog, Unpickled, and in the books that I write, I tell my stories there and I hold space for your stories here. And today I'm holding space for Bev Sartain. Bev is a psych strategist who helps others heal their wounds so that they can serve. Beverly truly believes that helpers are the greatest asset in helping humanity, and she encourages people in the helping profession to continue their inner work to be of service to helping others from a healthy place. She's the author of Transcending Trauma, and she joins me today to tell her story, celebrate her recovery, and to talk about helping helpers heal. Hi, Bev. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you so much. It's a lot of a lot of H's. <laughs> alliteration for you. A lot of alliteration. I'm up for it today. You're awesome. lucky. <laughs> well, thanks for being here. I want to get right down to business. I want our listeners to get to know you and hear your story. So I will turn it over to you. All right. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. Um, I'm going to be celebrating 15 years of recovery very soon. So I'm very happy about that. I am middle-aged, so I'm 41, and I've been married for about 10 years. We live in Jacksonville, Florida, and we have four rescue dogs. We were never able to have children, so our rescue animals are really, really important to us. We're currently even talking about buying more land so that we can train and foster dogs. I love being in nature. So Jacksonville has just a lot of beautiful, beautiful nature. There's the ocean and the river and lots of trees and lots of birds. I'm even looking outside my window right now and I can see just all the blue jays and cardinals. So that's a little bit about me. I also really like astrology. So this is a hobby that I've been getting more and more into. Um, I love astrology and planning my business to the moon. So I actually work with my own coach around planning my business to the moon. And I love to do birth chart readings for people. So it's just this hobby and side gig that I like to do. But it's just something interesting that, that I find really fascinating and very helpful. As far as the culture I grew up in, uh, my parents were both immigrants So I actually grew up speaking another language. Parents are both German, and so we grew up speaking German at home. We also traveled a lot. My sister was born in Germany, my brother was born in South Africa, and I happened to be born in the United States. I'm the firstborn American in my family. My dad had a drinking problem, and my mom really tried to manage my dad's drinking problem. 
From a very young age, I really always saw my dad as the persecutor. I saw my mom as the victim, and I saw myself as the rescuer. And so this was kind of the family dynamic that played out for me. I have two older siblings. My sister's 13 years older than me, and my brother's seven years older than me. So I often felt very alone and isolated, especially because my dad's drinking and my mom's codependency really ended up turning into a domestic violence situation. Home was never a safe place for me. Home was not a place that I really liked being. And interestingly enough, because all of my aunts and uncles and cousins lived in a different country, um, it just was a very lonely and and neglected and isolated experience. It felt like all of the attention was on my dad's problem around drinking. And it felt like my mom spent much of her time trying to manage my dad's drinking. And I oftentimes as a child felt like I didn't have a voice. I was very quiet and I enjoyed writing. And interestingly enough, I did really well at school. I excelled at school. So it was like anything outside of the house was really something I focused on and gave a lot of my attention to. I think that's where I started to pick up that I received value and worth from giving to others by, you know, giving at school or work, or I just started to pick up a misunderstanding there that my value and worth was really dependent on what I did for other people. So I really started at a very young age to go out of the house because it didn't feel like a safe place for me. And so I can remember being eight years old and at my friend's house. I mean, when I think back on my childhood, I always think about how I did not want to be at my house. That's just always what I remember. Um, And so certainly when I became a teenager, I was not home a lot. And my mom really supported that because I think she knew that home wasn't a safe place for me and that she thought maybe I would have a better experience if I was gone and with friends or at other people's houses. I did that. I was gone quite a bit. I was gone and out and about. That led to me hanging out with older people, it led to me using alcohol and drugs already at the age of 13. And I can remember when I started to do drugs, when I first drank, I can remember the first time that I did drink, I was immediately depressed. I mean, there was a very short-lived time where I felt any sense of joy or happiness. I mean, it was immediate depression for me, which probably at that point was already a sign that I had some mental health issues. I carried on with using substances all through high school. And I would say really the the bulk of my drug use um, happened in college. The truth of the matter is that I had just a lot of unresolved childhood trauma. And I tried to just sweep the trauma underneath the rug and keep focusing on accolades and accomplishments and moving forward in my life. But it's like the trauma kept rearing its head. I, I felt like I couldn't really move forward with my life or step into my potential because I kept feeling pulled back into the past. Um, and when I think about the trauma, it, it's like my mind and my body had not processed the trauma. It it was unresolved. 
And I kept wanting to just move past it, push past it, forget about it. And my body kept talking to me. My mind was clearly talking to me through the many different anxiety disorders that I have been diagnosed with. I was wanting to just do a bypass, you know, a bypass on my trauma. Um, And it wouldn't be till, you know, years later that I realized I was going to have to go through a process so that I could get my mind, body and spirit right. I realized that I needed to work on my mind and my body so that I could actually access my spirit. So that was a whole process that needed to happen. Um, And unfortunately, it took a lot more consequences for me to get to the place where I could actually do do that work. I had a DUI and my, my father ended up dying from cirrhosis of the liver from his drinking when I was 24. And I'd love to say that those two consequences were enough to get me to stop. But at that point, it took another two years before I hit my personal bottom or got to my crossroads in my life where something had to be done differently. Unfortunately for me, it really took suicidal ideations for me to realize that I needed to get help. So I was at that point working at a nonprofit. I was working at a domestic violence shelter. And I had this epiphany that I was just focusing on helping other people versus focusing on helping myself. And I was doing this again, like another bypass of, oh, if I just serve other people, if I just give to other people, if I just do good work into this world, like that somehow that was magically going to resolve my personal issues and that I would be free of what I was experiencing within myself. But of course that didn't happen. And asking for help as a helping professional was really difficult for me. And it really held me back for a long time. It created a lot of shame for me. I just kept saying to myself, but I can help other people. Why can't I help myself? And really just kind of holding myself hostage with my my beliefs around this, that it would be weak to ask for help, that I'm the helper, I'm supposed to help other people, I should be able to help myself. I had this whole narrative around it that really got in the way of me getting the support that I needed. And unfortunately, things did get to a point of suicidal ideation where I didn't want to die. I just wanted the the emotional suffering that I was going through to end. So luckily, I, you know, reached out to someone and I just let him know what was going on for me. This, this person was actually someone I had been in an intimate partner relationship with, and I had actually lost that relationship with him because of my use. But we had remained friends, and I had just let him know I was having a really hard time and just waking up in anxiety attacks and feeling very down and bad and not feeling like I could go on anymore. And so he set up an appointment for me to see a psychotherapist, and that's really how my journey began. He took me to that appointment, and I can remember feeling such a relief after I left that initial session. You would think that that would be the turning point, but it wasn't. It took me another three months. I wanted to moderate. I thought that I could moderate. And of course, I I wasn't able to do so. And I'm very fortunate to this man that was my psychotherapist because he really was direct with me, which is what I needed, and and just kind of said, hey, if if we're going to do the mental and emotional work that you said you wanted to do, 
then I think you're going to need to stop drinking for at least the next year. And I had a few more consequences that happened after that, that I just ended up walking into his office again and saying, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to do this. And, and so the journey began. And so I continued to see him. I started to take medication for my mental health issues. And about six months into my sobriety is when spiritual psychology came on my radar. I happened to be working at the domestic violence shelter with someone who was going to the University of Santa Monica for counseling. And he just thought that I would be a good fit for it, knowing my story. And so six months into my sobriety, I ended up going to get my master's degree in spiritual psychology. Um, and it was just a game changer for me. I think I was just what I call ripe and ready for a new way of being. And I truly was. I mean, because I had been at basically this crossroad of choose to die or choose to live, I had kind of said to myself, if I choose to live, which was the choice that I made, I'm going to do everything I can to find a different way of being, a different way of being with myself, a different way of being in this world. Spiritual psychology was just so, so wonderful because it gave me these principles and these paradigms and practices to try on, to test out, to embody and it immediately resonated with my soul. You know, it, it immediately struck a chord with my heart. And I just, I just knew like, this is something I can lean into. This is something I can apply. And I, I will see what gets created when I take these learnings and I apply them to the best of my ability. Um, and that was a two-year process. It was extensive. You know, I really utilized the two-year process to go as deep as I could for the deepest healing available to me. And there was much that was resolved. There was much that was resolved in those two years because of that deep healing that I did. I then intended to carry on the principles, the paradigms, the practices, just because I realized how important it was in my recovery to change what was in my consciousness. And I oftentimes in my recovery really relate more to conscious awakening than I do to focusing on substances or mental health. Um, it was through focusing on resolving what was in my consciousness that I was then able to support myself around the substance piece and the mental health piece. That's remained my focus. My focus has remained on what some people call spiritual awakening. In spiritual psychology, we call it conscious awakening. I have just stayed focused on that and sharing that with people. For me, being a demonstration of the principles, paradigms, and practices has been first and foremost. And really keeping this focus on as I serve other people, I'm also actualizing myself. This has been really critical for me too so that I don't slip into any codependency around being of service or helping others or, or any of the work that I do um, these days. And so for me, thinking about this reciprocation and just thinking about this win-win that I have to include myself in this equation, I need to be healthy and taking good care of myself. And then I serve from that place. I share from that place. I speak my truth from that place. That's been really important as I've moved on in my continued unfolding. And so I love to always share that message with people. And that's why I obviously have such a connection with 
helping other helpers, helping coaches, helping people that are service-oriented, but reminding them that you are part of the equation of that service and that we, we, we have to make sure we're always looking at ourselves and, and aware of what needs to be taken care of within so that we can share ourselves outside. How is life now? Well, I think I've started to share a little bit about this. Just this new way of being has been really essential to me. Just having the choice point too of, of who do I want to be. And I think what spiritual psychology really did for me is it, it helped me realize I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. And it really helped me separate my humanness from just my essence, my loving essence. Feel totally equipped to deal with my humanness now. I have a lot of compassion, non judgment, a lot of love for my own humanness and the humanness of other people. And my intention is really to connect with people from my loving essence and share share the loving with people because I truly do believe that healing happens in the loving, which is a spiritual psychology principle. So these days, you know, I feel very much at peace. I feel very much at home within myself. I feel very joyful and I'm really good at co-creating, which has been so fun over the last six, seven years of my business of just receiving downloads, receiving intuitions, um, following those things, and creating and facilitating space for people to be able to heal, to self-discover, to get to know the truth of who they are. I really enjoy supporting people and learning about the truth of who they are and having them share that with the world. And I feel like if more and more of us can heal our humanness and just have acceptance and love and, and non-judgment for our humanness, then we can let more of our, our spirit shine. We can let more of our loving essence come through. And if we could all be operating more on this, this level of loving essence and being with one another from a very loving place, I just truly believe that our human experience would be so much more enjoyable. And as far as how I maintain motivation around sobriety, it's quite easy for me because I'm so I'm so committed to living out my soul's potential. And so I'm I'm really committed to the actualization process. I love helping other people with it. I love experiencing it myself. I enjoy being conscious. You know, these things are just I value them so much. I value being a demonstration of them so that I can experience it and other people can too. And so I just have such a high commitment to it that I love doing it. I don't, there's nothing else that I want to do, but, but carry on and allow the unfolding to happen and, and just to enjoy this experience. So it, it comes quite easy now. I think also it's been helpful to just always be in a place of sharing myself with people around the principles and practices, you know, doing things like this where, where I get to connect and, and share with the listeners and, you know, writing and just putting my, my voice out there because, there, like I said, there was once a time where I felt very disconnected from my voice. I didn't feel like I had one. I didn't feel like anybody was listening um, I didn't feel like anybody cared because there was other things that seemed more important. 
And so now just to be at a place within myself where the true win is just being here, being, you know, sharing my truth, giving myself a voice, and then hopefully inspiring and encouraging someone else to resolve what needs to be resolved so that you can experience peace and joy within yourself and you can then create a life that you love and are proud of and enjoy. So that's, that's what's present for me now. Thanks, Bev. You speak with a, a calmness that it, it goes right into me. <laughs> like I, I have, I'm a person who is like very anxious by nature and my heart beats really fast. And, and I can just feel myself as you're talking, I feel like a puddle of jello. So whatever you have going on is resonating over the internet and into me. There's definitely, you you have an ability to affect people and to share a level of not just calm, but bring this energy of healing and openness and safety along. Do you think that's something that you always had, or do you think it's a byproduct of the work that you do, or is it something that you intentionally are able to cultivate with other people? All of the above. (laughs) All that. (laughs) Um, I think that um, I came here to heal myself. And I think that that through that healing, I came here to share that healing with other people. I do think I had some abilities when I was younger. And part of that, like just observing everything has really helped with those abilities. So, you know, I actually, um, though there was a lot of challenges growing up, I, I, I honestly really have just so much admiration for my mom and my dad and what I went through. Because in spiritual psychology, there's something called spiritual curriculum. And so just that that notion that we all have our own spiritual curriculum that we're working through has really helped me make peace with a lot of my past. And for me in particular, with this notion of not feeling seen or heard, I think part of it was just not seeing or hearing myself getting really good at observing other people. And so that really helps me now. Like when I coach people, I can hold a really, really great space for people, but I can also, I can hear things that maybe the person isn't saying that I bring forward. So it's interesting how something that was painful back then, I can see now how it it also created a really great skill that I've been able to cultivate over the years. And I think that my ability to a lot of people talk about my my non-judgment when I'm holding space for them and I always share that that is really because I've had to work so diligently on not judging myself and so I'm very aware and sensitive to facilitating a space of non-judgment for myself but also for other people so some of the things that have been challenges have now become part of my abilities. You talked in your book about feeling the shame of being in the helping profession, but needing help yourself. And that is something I certainly hear a lot as I interview people on this show that a lot of people have trouble acknowledging that they need help because they feel that being a doctor, a teacher, a nurse, a therapist, um, Mm -hmm. that somehow they're supposed to be exempt from the human experience of hurting and and failing and and not being perfect. (laughs) And I feel like that shame 
is something that our subconscious just latches onto and leverages against us. So can you talk about that? How anyone who is feeling shame can heal that or work on it? I think shame was one of the biggest emotions I had to work through. And I I really correlate it with my self-worth. So these two things like were very intertwined for me. Um, and I can remember being at work and anytime I would receive constructive criticism, I would just feel awful. And I couldn't put my finger on it for the longest time. But then when I heard the word shame and I would tap into that feeling, I was like, that's it. It's like I'm shaming myself for being imperfect. I'm I'm shaming myself for making a perceived mistake or I'm shaming myself because I didn't do it right. There was just a lot of right, wrong, good, bad, a lot of this type of misunderstanding that I had. Um, And so I really tried to be perfect and do good and be 10 steps ahead of everybody and everything as a way to support myself and not experiencing that feeling of shame. That is exhausting and tiring (laughs) and, and not something that we're even able to do. And so, you know, learning to be with the feelings, to befriend the feelings was a new concept for me because I realized I was trying to outrun my trauma. I was really trying to outrun feeling any of the feels, you know, um, being with any of the thoughts. And so it was through spiritual psychology that I really learned how to learn from the feeling or learn from the thought. One of the things that helped was thoughts, feelings, behaviors. So learning that the thoughts preceded the feelings, that was really helpful for me because I I used to get kind of caught up in the feelings. And so when I realized or learned that, then it was just always writing it back to what is the thought here that, um, and, and it was always something, you know, around you're, you're wrong and therefore you're not lovable, you're bad. It's as though because I had experienced conditional love at home, I had the epiphany that I was being now conditional with my own love in my life. And that was so horrifying, but yet obviously a great awareness to have um, so that I could heal it. But it was these types of things, you know, learning how to be with the shame and what was shame's message for me? What was the learning from the shame? It was starting to work with this. And I had, you know, a really hard time with anxiety. So anxiety was another emotion for me that, or feeling for me that was really challenging. And I hated the anxiety. I wanted to get rid of the anxiety. And it's that kind of an experience that really creates more resistance around these feelings. So whether it's shame, anxiety, or some other emotion for anyone who's listening, it's starting to befriend it so that you might learn from it. It's there to teach you something. And when we can start to have more openness and compassion and non-judgment, even for that feeling that we don't like, then it starts to like loosen it up and gives the opportunity for it, it to be resolved. So you mentioned this quickly, thoughts, feelings, behaviors. So I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit more about that concept, what it means and how we use it. 
even in, in CBT, they, they use something similar to this, but just for me, like just very simple, um, strategies, like just knowing that thoughts lead to feelings, feelings lead to behaviors. And so wherever you can come in on, on that spectrum, like if it's that you can notice a behavior and then you can write it back to a feeling and then ride that back to a thought, that's going to give you really valuable information about what's unresolved and what still needs to be resolved in your process. So when it comes to making changes with regards to using alcohol, if the behavior we want to change is our drinking, then we work backwards from behavior to feelings to thoughts. Is that the idea? Exactly. Exactly. So you would want to think about what are, and and it might be different for each of us. That's why it's a very individualized and personal experience. Your feelings that come up for you before you maybe go to a behavior may be different than somebody else's. And then when you write it back to the thought, the thoughts can be different too. But there's general themes that happen for people around be you know not good enough unworthy not lovable like these are the the underlying thoughts that are there for lots of people and those are the things that that then need to be resolved so is it a matter of changing those thoughts introducing new thoughts negating them <laughs> great question <laughs> um so so what i love about the spiritual psychology is is we really work on the four levels of the mental emotional spiritual and physical and so you really want to be just approaching, just approaching your life, but approaching yourself around those four levels. And so, you know, to resolve the thoughts, one of the techniques we use in spiritual psychology is just is, is a self-forgiveness technique. So it's not per se just reframing a thought. It's working on a spiritual level, on a deeper level to support yourself in truly resolving this thought for the last time. So where we might hear of just reframing or flipping it, a thought to a more positive thought, this goes a bit deeper. And this, this is probably this, the technique that's been the most helpful for me personally, because it's I forgive myself for buying into the misunderstanding that I have to be perfect to be lovable. The truth is that, you know, I'm whole and complete now if I can start to see myself that way. It's not just a flip. It's like you're like you're digging out a root. <laughs> if you think like in terms of gardening or something, like you're pulling out a weed, you know, so it's going to a much deeper level than just maybe a mental flip, which doesn't always stick for people. One little exercise I learned somewhere along the way, and it's been super helpful for me, and listeners may have heard me talk about this before, but I'm going to say it again because I like it so much, is that if I'm ruminating on a memory or a feeling or on something bad, I take a mental snapshot of it. So I, I think in particular of just something that happened when I was a teenager, say, i will be beating myself up about it or reliving how it felt, and I'll just, I'll just pause pause it like an image, like a freeze frame in my mind. And then I walk into it myself. Now I, I take myself into that picture and I give younger me a hug 
And I just like give her all of the strength and wisdom and knowledge Mm -hmm. and forgiveness that I have now that I didn't have then. And somehow in doing that, it creates a new picture in my mind and I can never go back and ruminate quite the same way again, because now I have a new little pixelated image to go with it. I don't know why it works or how it works, but it really, really helps. (laughs) That's incredible. Well, it sounds like you're bringing love and compassion and grace to yourself. And that's exactly what I was just sharing. Healing happens in the loving. Mm -hmm. So that was beautiful. You you found a, a, a great way to bring healing to yourself, to bring loving to yourself, to bring non-judgment to yourself. And in that, you've been able to create a different image for yourself. So that's fantastic. You talk about holistic healing, and that is what you mean with holistic, right? Is mental, emotional, spiritual, mm-hmm. and, and psychological. No, mental, mental, emotional, spiritual, physical. And physical. Oh, I couldn't read my own handwriting. (laughs) (laughs) It went off the page. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One of the things that people resist when they look at recovery programs or are dealing with their past is that anything that feels religious or touches on some old wounds that might be wound up in spiritual aspects, or if they have some kind of past trauma related to their spiritual experiences. That can be really hard. So how do you get people to move past the fear of even the word spiritual in spiritual psychology? Yeah, it's an interesting notion. I mean, I I personally don't have any religious training. So for me, it was it was more about opening myself up to connection. You know, I, I usually like to interchange the word spiritual for connection. It's just having a deeper connection with yourself, having a deeper connection with nature, having a deeper connection with something greater than you, whatever that might be for you. And I think that that's part of the journey, finding your own way with this, finding your own path, taking the resources and making them applicable to you. I love sharing it that way versus, you know, it's not this one way that you have to do it. It's more, you know, here's a path. And here are principles, paradigms, and practices, and, and you start to take the ones that resonate with you and, and you try those on. So I don't think we're, you know, I mean, I'm personally never trying to make somebody have a different experience of the word spiritual. I, as a coach, always get curious with people, like, what does that word mean to you? Mm. Um, and what would be a better feeling experience that you'd like to have around that word? You know, is there a different word that we can use? so that you can connect with it in a way that's meaningful for you. Those are some of the the ways that I would work with it if somebody was having a challenge around that word. I feel like your approach works for the flip side of it too, which is that there's some people that are very grounded in their religious beliefs and feel, you know, really confident and and settled and good about where they're at with that aspect of their life. And sometimes then working from a place of working on spirituality doesn't always feel like it's in alignment with their established beliefs as well. So I like that you honor where people are at and that this work isn't particular to any certain perspective. It's just healing that part of you because it is part of you. And taking what you need from it. Right. Because 
you can see like the ego and the mind already wants to find a way to, you know, go out the back door. It's already like, this is different. This is wrong. This isn't what I normally believe. This is like, your mind's going to do that to you. And so that's one of the things I love about spiritual psychology. I can remember my teacher, Dr. Ron Holnick saying, you know, why not win in your own fantasies? If you can create the stories in your head, why not make them work for you? So we want to support people in making things work for them, not in, you know, exasperating that part of ourselves that questions everything, that makes everything wrong, that that's the part that's getting in the way of the deeper connection. And so I think just just really supporting people, meeting them where they're at, just getting curious about what the words or the languaging or the verbiage means to them and finding the language and the verbiage that works for them so that they can open themselves up to being healed or moving forward or taking action or whatever it is. Um, that's what I love about it. It's usually uh, I get so many people that say they find the language of spiritual psychology very loving. That's what I always hear. And they like the language of it because it, it keeps them open. It keeps them open to resolving things versus when we use judgmental language or language that might be shaming, people retract from that because they don't want to experience the emotional suffering, right? So I love that just being mindful about the languaging and more so checking in with whoever you're supporting and understanding what their language is and what language they want to use around these things can make it very impactful for them. Bev, what's a healing roadmap and how do we use that? Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The healing roadmap is is something I created um, just from, you know, 10 years of nonprofit work and then almost seven years now in coaching business. So having experienced a lot of people's um, healing and their process, I created a roadmap of um, what one might go through or can go through to really resolve the unresolved issues. I think ultimately for anybody listening, like you just want to be thinking about what are the things that come up for me in my consciousness that, you know, I I really would like to have resolved, you know, and so it could be something from the past, from your childhood. It's just something that keeps coming up for you. It's coming up for a reason. And so um, it's something like this, you know, where somebody could just look at the roadmap. It gives you um, 12 different topics to work through. And so it's meant to provide a visual to people, but I also really love breaking down the process for people so that people can understand like, where do I start? Where, where am I in this process? What might I have not thought of yet that I need to do in service to resolving this, this thing that needs to be healed so that I can move on and live my potential. I want to touch on a few of the things that your book mentions that you worked through yourself. So one of the first things that you talk about is a de-identification process. What does that mean? I'm so glad you brought that up because I love talking about it. <laughs> um, I was just talking about this uh, with somebody earlier today too, so it's funny it's coming forward. But this de-identifying from 
whatever, like for de-identifying from I'm an alcoholic, de-identifying from, you know, I'm a victim, de-identifying from whatever needs to be de-identified from. So what, what I find is that when we're identified with our humanness, it can be really hard to resolve these things. And that's what I see over and over and over again, is just people struggling to resolve the shame because they're just identified with their humanness and their shame and their victim, their victim consciousness. Um, And so, and that was my journey too. I was completely identified with my victim consciousness and my story about, you know, all the bad things that had happened to me and how I'd been wronged by people. And I just stayed stuck in this, in this story. Um, And it almost got in the way of me living my life. Just the concept of this, I think, can be really powerful for people just to hear like, oh, you know, maybe I need to de-identify from whatever story I've been carrying around with me for a long time so that I might connect more with the truth of who I am beyond just the story. Because you're so much more than maybe the bad things that have happened to you or the bad things that you've done. You're so much more than that. And I find that people get very connected to identifying with things that don't serve them. Um, and sometimes people live out a whole lifetime that way. And so hopefully just hearing that, that concept of de-identifying and just challenging yourself, questioning yourself, getting curious with yourself about what you might need to de-identif- de-identify from so that you can make like create some spaciousness and this is kind of where the loving and the compassion and the non-judgment can come in and start to do some of the healing that that needs to happen so that you don't stay stuck in that story for a lifetime. So do you discourage people from using self-identifying words like I'm an alcoholic or do you feel like those labels can be useful or how how do you encourage people to think about that? I personally don't encourage people to think about it in any sort of way. I I personally don't identify that way. Um, I never have. And because I just kind of innately have had the understanding and was already connected to this concept of I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. I have an understanding that some labels help people understand a little bit more of maybe what's going on for them. And I think that's, that's perfectly fine and great, as long as we're not using that story against ourselves. And that's sometimes what I see people do is they use the labels against themselves and and hold it in their consciousness in a way to where it gets in the way of them actually moving forward um, or through it um, to to actualize or live their potential. And so in that way, I think it can can be harmful to somebody. Talk about Victim versus creator. I love this concept. So because I, because I was living in victim consciousness for so long. And so when we use that word victim, I know sometimes people don't like that word, but I don't mean that word. There's no judgment around it. Um, for me, when I say that word, it's just like being inside of your consciousness, being in that poor me or that woe is me or everything's so hard for me. Like that's what I'm talking about. Being stuck in that kind of a state of mind. And the truth is I was stuck in that state of mind for many, many years. So that's why I resonate with this, this concept so much of shifting more into the, the creator consciousness 
mindset, which is is really going to be actually really more in alignment with coaching too, which is kind of fascinating about it, is just, you know, personal responsibility, ownership, um, awareness, acknowledgement, like your own insights. What am I going to now do with that? What am I going to take action on? So it's, it's just more like putting you, that's how you become a co-creator in your life is you, you spend more of your time in this energetic that is being creative and, and working on solutions and, and how can I do it differently versus spending time in this, this place of victim consciousness, which can feel very much for me like a dead end. You know, I, I still go into victim consciousness sometimes, but I, I pull out of it much quicker now because as soon as I go into it, I kind of ask myself, you know, like, is this really what you, where you want to be right now? And sometimes I'm like, yes, <laughs> this is where I want to be right now. Um, but most of the time, for I'm five like, minutes, I'll give myself five <laughs> minutes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then I'm always like, okay, this is a dead end. <laughs> you know? And so, yes, it's been that kind of a, a process and training um, of just, I don't really want to be in that place anymore. It doesn't do anything for me. You know, it never did, um, um, but now I can just see it quicker um, and pull myself out faster. Your dad died when you were quite young and, you know, given the history and he succumbed to his alcoholism, I'm guessing there was Mm -hmm. lots of grief and lots of feelings that were tangled up and not processed until you started really your own healing journey. You write about doing an exercise called open chair. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was a, a a really significant loss for me for many reasons. Um, and I was the last person there with my dad when he died. Um, so it was just him and I. And so it was a very surreal experience, but it was also a very beautiful experience in a lot of ways. There was a lot of entanglement with him because in, in one way, I felt like my connection with him was that we drank together. Um, And so that was kind of a strange thing. Um, And when I was in the process of not drinking anymore and going through, you know, the early stages of my recovery, I oftentimes almost felt like I was betraying him in some sort of way because he didn't get healthy or heal. And I did. And so there was like some survivor's guilt or something there for a little while. But the open chair was a really cool process because you can do it with anybody um, and, and of course, he was already deceased at this time. And so there was just a lot of things that I felt I needed to process through that I didn't obviously have the chance to do with him. And so I used the open chair exercise that I learned at USM to have this conversation with him. Part of the conversation was, you know, about feeling bad that I was getting healthy and better and that he didn't. So there was just a back and forth that you do. And and so I received personally some very healing messages that supported me in continuing on my path. So is it basically sitting across from an empty chair and having a conversation with a person who's not there? (laughs) It sounds super weird. (laughs) Yes. So you, you're sitting across from the chair and so you start to have just a conversation with, the person that isn't there, but you're visualizing that they are. And then you move um, into their chair and you speak as if you're speaking from them. 
and then you move back to your chair, ask another question, and you can you can carry on a dialogue this way. And so I received some really um, powerful messages by doing this, and it it truly supported me and going all in on my recovery and healing journey. Okay, so what's the mindset when you sit in their chair and speak to them? Do you get to say what you think they should have said? Yeah, you, not what they should have, but really like I, I, I said what I think you would have said. You know, it was re- very intuitive. I mean, it wasn't like I was, I, you're not using your mind so much. It's more of a kind of a spiritual experience. So I can imagine what, for example, my dad would say to me, but I'm wondering if when you did that, then did you also maybe have the surprise of feeling what they might've felt that you wouldn't have necessarily been able to predict? I think what was most surprising was, well, I was surprised when he, he said to me, I didn't figure this out in this lifetime, but I will be back and I will figure it out. So that was kind of surprising Mm -hmm. just to get like that message of maybe there are more lifetimes. I know that's not everybody's belief, but that's, that's what, what came forward. And so that was a little bit interesting and surprising, but what wasn't surprising was just like his tenderness and his, you've got to move forward with this. Like you do have a chance to do this. So do it. It was just so what I needed at that time because he had somewhat died abruptly, even though he had been sick with, with his cirrhosis, we were under the impression that he was getting better because he wasn't being honest about his illness. And so I wasn't thinking that he was going to pass away. And so there was a lot that was still unresolved because of that. So I was just really happy to have this. So I had a couple people that were there with me that were holding the space for me while I did this. Do you feel like that kind of work is something that should be done with help? Or is that something people could do on their own? That's a good question. (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm always one to try stuff like that on my own. But um, that's also because I've, you know, studied psychology and done a lot of these things. But I don't think you necessarily need to have someone, you know, a lot of the the tools and techniques that that we that we use are things that you can you can do a dialogue in your journal, you know, back and forth with some somebody, we do that with some other things that that are taught there. But there's something about moving to the chair, gene that was so, that, that actually was probably the biggest surprise of the technique. But it was the moving to the chair and then moving back to this chair and then moving into his seat again. It was something through that, that just like it moved the energy or something for me. Yeah, I guess because you'd be looking back at yourself in a different way too. I could see that would be powerful. Yeah, I would say it depends on just how, you know, if, you, if you're fearful or you think it's going to be a really deep process, then definitely I would have some support there. It just depends on the relationship I think people have. This has been such an interesting discussion. Bev, how can our listeners find you, get your book and learn about your work? Yes, Holistic Coach Training Institute. You know, we're, we're training coaches for an ICF accredited program. And so that is a really great website to check out. Of course, I'm on Facebook and, and LinkedIn is another place that I spend a lot of time connecting with professionals. I love connecting, honestly. Um, I 
really get something out of connecting with people, partly because my story is that it was so disconnected for many years. And so I'm somebody who really enjoys having conversations with people and connecting with people on a deeper level. So if anybody ever wants to reach out or email or you can do that. And the book, Transcending Trauma, How I Used Spiritual Psychology to Heal My Life is is on Amazon. Please, please grab that. And you also do a podcast that I've been listening to that's really interesting where you coach coaches. (laughs) So tell our listeners about that as well. Yeah, the Holistic Coach Legacy podcast. So I've just gotten a lot of feedback over the years that people want to hear coaching demos. They... They want to hear more of the skills that get used in coaching. And so that's been really fun. I've been um, doing coaching demos and featuring students that have gone through our coach certification program and featuring my husband on there too. We talk through some things. And so, yeah, that's a, a, a really great resource if you're interested in coaching or if you are a coach that's looking to just continue to perfect your skills. Holistic Coach Legacy Podcast. Thank you. Bev, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed my discussion with Bev Sartain. That's all for this week. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on. Just want to be free from the power. Oh, you